We have been talking about the Passion Week, about the time period when Jesus entered into Jerusalem and, and kind of started the process of working toward the cross. Um, we began by talking about uh, the, the, what he did right after the, the crowd and how he pointed the finger at some of the Jewish religious leaders and basically helped them to understand that there were some things that they were doing that needed to change. Um, all of that basically led them to get really angry with Jesus, as is often the case. Have you noticed that when you call somebody out, they have a tendency sometimes to get a little irritated with that? Well, that definitely happened. And so while Jesus was still leading and teaching, some of the priests and elders started getting to get and they plotted to kill him. And last week we found out that, that while Jesus was having dinner in Bethany and, and a woman stopped by who paired, poured some very expensive perfume on him, we found out that some of his disciples were very, very upset that this wealth that was in that bottle, it, with that perfume that was so expensive, uh, they were uh, mad that that got poured out instead of being sold. And we found out that Jesus honors the giver more than the gift, that he values the giver over the gift. And I hope that you took that home with you. I hope that no matter what you have to bring to the table, you know that God values you more than the gifts that you have to offer. Remember that always. Then after, comes right after that is the Last Supper, which again, we celebrate in, in our um, particular um, tradition here. We celebrate on Monday, Thursday, the Thursday before Easter. And so we're going to kind of jump right over that because in our passion studies, what we're really studying is what Jesus suffered and what he endured and what he permitted. And so I want to jump to Matthew 26, and we're going to actually be referring to uh, two stories that are from verse 36 to 56. I'm not going to read it all to you. In fact, I want to begin with the last part because the last part is probably more familiar to some of you. What this passage displays to us is Jesus' betrayal. As Jesus went into the Last Supper, he continued to talk to his disciples about what would come next. And they had a tendency to kind of just shine it over. They didn't really listen to what he had to say. If they would have been listening, they would have realized that something big was about to happen. But they just figured it was business as usual, and so they had a meal together. And even in the midst of that meal, Jesus said, I'm going to be turned over. One of you is going to betray me. And in the part of that conversation, they all went around and said, well, is it me? Is every one of them thinking it wouldn't be them, except for one? One, we are told, had already made the decision. He'd already made the deal, 30 pieces of silver, and Judas would betray Jesus. And so after that meal was over, the Bible tells us that Jesus went out into the Garden of Gethsemane, or as it says in the Greek, the olive grove, depending on which translation you're looking for. Suffice it to say, it was a place where they could go and kind of find some seclusion. And so the, the, the betrayal that would come would be Judas and a band of guys that had weapons and torches that it showed up in the garden with Jesus, and basically they would take him and he would be tried and the week would begin. And so I want to first just very quickly touch on that because again, this story is, is kind of um, popular. This story is the one everybody's heard. He's out in the garden. He hears the, the people coming and as they come, he, he basically sees them coming as if they're coming to apprehend someone who is going to put up a fight. They have swords, they have clubs, they're, they're, there's a huge number of them. It kind of gives that whole vibe of every Frankenstein movie you've ever seen where they come with the pitch forks and the torches. Has anybody seen those or is that just me with Abbott and Costello? It's all 
always there. There's always this mob that comes, you know, and you're saying, no, don't do it. It's stupid. He's going to kill you all. But they don't listen. They just never listen. I don't know where that came from. That wasn't in early service. Um, But anyway, there's this whole group that comes to Jesus. and, And basically, Judas walks up to Jesus. And he betrays him with a kiss. Now, again, there are questions about this. I don't understand how they didn't know what Jesus looked like. He'd been there the whole week. Uh, Like he'd been in the temple. He'd been teaching. They welcomed him in Jerusalem. Every single person there saw his face. There's all of these theories floating around about why Judas had to do it. And probably the best one is this. It was to fulfill prophecy. That he would be someone that he knew. There's a possibility it was required by Jewish law for someone to be the one to say, this is the person whom I am accusing of whatever the charges would be. We don't really know. But we know that to be betrayed by a kiss must have been something horrible for Jesus to go through. And so Judas points out Jesus and the disciples, one of them takes up arms according to the story in Matthew and pulls his sword. And Jesus is like, put that away. You know, you're a fisherman, for, for crying out loud. He didn't say that, that. I added that. Put your sword away. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And then Jesus says something unique. He says, listen, don't you think if I wanted to, I could call down to my Father in heaven and he could send every angel in heaven and he could come and he could rescue us. How many of you grew up hearing that song, 10,000 Angels? <laughs> yeah. That always conjured some really weird images in my, you know, he could have called 10,000 to destroy. I always thought, man, that would have been cool to watch. Yeah, no, not really, because we're in the world, right? Jesus could have done that. He had all the authority he needed to simply rescue himself, but what did he do? He permitted it. He waited. He knew that it was part of God's plan. And so he talks to the crowd. He said, am I some dangerous revolutionary, in verse 55, that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was right there. I was teaching and preaching every day. And you did nothing. This is all happening, he says, to fulfill the words of the prophets as recorded in Scripture. And so the the big betrayal, the one that we all know about, is Judas leading the people to Jesus in order to fulfill prophecy. Once again demonstrating that the Jewish religious leaders were following a script that they themselves hadn't written. Right? They were following a plan that they had no control over. They were just doing what had already for them to do. So, so that's the, the big betrayal. But the one I want to spend the most time on is, is what I'm going to call a smaller betrayal. Maybe not smaller in importance, but it's different. It's, it's more subtle. It's one that maybe you haven't thought about. And this particular betrayal comes in the first part of the text that I mentioned earlier, verses 36 through 45. And I want to read that for you. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little further and bowed his face to the ground, praying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want you. Then he returned to the disciples and found them, what? Sleeping. I'm very judgmental at this point. We'll talk about that later. Couldn't you watch with me for even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation for the spirit is willing but the body is weak 
Then Jesus left them a second time, and, and he prayed, My father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, then your will be done. And when he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. Men, I want to talk to you just for a minute right now. How many of you have ever gone to bed with, with your wife lying next to you, and suddenly she becomes the chattiest person on the planet? And you're laying there, and you're trying your best to listen and be a good husband and be responsive, and pretty soon you think you're listening and doing a good job, you're smiling, you're nodding, no motions, and the next thing you know, she's shaking you awake saying, did you hear what I said? <laughs> How many? Anybody willing to admit you've, yeah, that's been me. It just, that's the imagery that pops into my head. I, I know I desperately want to, to listen to my wife. I love her. I adore her. I respect her. I really am interested in what she has to say. But it's 11 o'clock at night, and I'm in bed. And you know what my body's used to doing in bed? Sleeping. So let's have this conversation at 6 o'clock. Amen? I'm going to start a campaign. Talk to us at 6 o'clock. No, it's never going to happen. That's the imagery I see here. The imagery is that they, they wanted to do it. They just couldn't quite do it. So he went to pray, verse 44, a third time saying the same things again. Then he came back to the disciples and said, you know what, go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. So as we look at this story, the first part of the story, the one that maybe doesn't get quite as much attention as the other, one of the first questions that pops into my head is why in the world did Jesus take the disciples with him? Why did he do that? All throughout the gospel story, we have stories of Jesus going off by himself to pray. There are lots of times. He even stayed on the shore of the, of the Sea of Galilee one time so he could have some alone time. And he sent the disciples. Of course, later, he came walking across on the water. But, but you know, at, at that very first part, he's like, you know, you go ahead. I need some quiet time. All, other times, the Bible says that he went up in the mountain to pray and left everybody else behind. It's clear from what he prays that the, that the business that he has to do is with God alone. It, it has nothing to do with the disciples. That the conversation that he wants to have is not with Peter, James, or John. It's with God himself. And he throws himself before the Creator. And he gets down on his face because his heart is crushed with anguish. He's out to God. And all he really needs is for the disciples to be there with him. But why bring them? Jesus had to know they'd be a disappointment Right? I mean, I'm an earthly father. I don't know what Jesus knew, and I can sometimes look at my kids and know that what I just asked them to do, they're not going to do. How many of you have that fifth sense? You're like, oh, that's never going to happen. Jesus had to know there was disappointment coming down the pike. But he invited them to come anyway. And I think I know why. I think Jesus wanted them by his side because he was human. He was human, like we are. And what do human beings want and need when everything is bleak, when everything is down, when there's no way forward, and you're looking forward to the worst days that you will ever have in your life? What do you need around you when you're that low? Comfort, friends, yes, people. 
What did God say in the beginning of creation when he looked at Adam? He said, it is not good for man to be alone. He didn't just mean marriage. He knew Adam would go through trouble. And he would need a person to be with him. And I believe Jesus dives deep into his humanity in this text. I believe Matthew recorded this, not so that we could think less of Jesus because he was weak, not so that we could ponder whether Jesus was doubting God's plan or his will for his life. I think Matthew included this because he wanted us to see the humanity of Jesus. Because as Christians, I think we have a tendency to lean heavily into the other part. You see, there are people all around this world that don't believe that Jesus was who he says he was, that believe in the humanity of Jesus only. Their issue is with the divinity of Jesus, whether he was really human and really God. But but those of us who follow him, we, we believe that he was both, but we tend to lean toward the divinity. Why? We get all the fun stuff, right? The miracles. I'd much rather read about Jesus walking on water than him just having some ordinary conversation with somebody, right? I'd much rather read about him raising Lazarus from the dead. I mean, geez, people write songs about that. We just sang one this morning. In case you haven't figured it out yet, that's what that song's about. Graves into gardens. It's way more fun to celebrate the miracles, the divinity, the extraordinary. But I think he included this because he wanted us to see the humanity of Jesus. Why? I think it's because of this. If we only see Jesus' divinity, then it makes it almost impossible for us to try to be like him. (laughs) Because there's certain things that Jesus did that there's pretty good chance I will never do. Now, I never discount God. I'm never going to say God can't because God can do anything through anyone he chooses. Amen? Amen? A magnificent faith healer right here on the spot and, you know, She'd be, just touch Norma and you're well again. It could happen. If it's going to happen to anybody, it's going to be Norma, let's be honest. God can do anything through anyone. Let's not say he can't. But listen, I'll tell you what, man, I would love to be able as a pastor to stand beside the bed of one of the many cancer patients that I've stood beside in my ministry and and be able to just without question and without doubt reach out my hand and heal them completely. And you know what? I've tried. I, I have tried. I have prayed and I have sought and I have been on my face before God for some people to be healed. And God has not chosen to give me that gift, apparently, because it didn't happen. I, I would love to be able to walk into the cemetery where my parents are buried and say, get on up. I wouldn't say come forth. I think get on up is better, don't you? Just say it with me once. Say, get on up. You didn't do it. Come on, say it with me. Here we go, ready? Get on up! I knew. I figured Walt would at least say it. But you like to come forth better. Well, anyway, I would love to be able to walk into that cemetery and stand in front of the tombstone that represents where they're buried and say, get on up and have them come up. I don't want to see what they look like now because that would be pretty rough. Lazarus was only in there three days. But I would love to have them back with me. Wouldn't you? Listen, I would love to be able to do some of the things that, that Jesus did. I, I would love to always have the right words to say, especially to the haters in my life, right? To the people who always are discounting. I would love to be able to respond as Jesus responded and always say the right words. But notice I'm putting that in the category of miracles right now because that's where that belongs. 
Listen, sometimes we think following Jesus is, is like trying to play basketball like Michael Jordan or LeBron. This analogy came to me because I'm coaching basketball. I'm sorry. When I coach, you get basketball's analogies. It's just going to happen. But imagine for me, like I, I'm there helping my players learn how to play the game of basketball. And, and sometimes, you know, they get in situations that they can't get around. We had a, a team that would run us into another defender and that guy would be set there and we'd run over him and we'd get a charging call every stinking time. And they befuddled us completely with that move and it drove me crazy. So crazy I got a technical that game. I'm not proud of that. I'm confessing, okay? I hadn't had a technical since I left Bullet Creek. I was the most technical guy there at Bullet Creek for a while. Anyway, this, they did this to us. And so in practice, I'm trying to figure out how do, I, how do I help them understand how to get around that? How do I change their behavior so that we can fix that problem? And you know what? I'd love to be able to just say to them, hey, do what Michael Jordan would do. I mean, that's what we do. We say, you know, what would Jesus do? What would Michael Jordan do in this situation, right? Or what would LeBron James do, right? Isn't he the newest, biggest, best, wonderful? I don't even NBA, but you know, do what Michael Jordan would do. And I know what the kids would say to me, Dad or Dad. Well, one of them's my son, but anyway, Coach Michael Jordan would just go around the dude and then jump fifty feet in the air and dunk the ball with both hands and then shatter the backboard, you know, by hanging on it. That's what Michael Jordan would do. And Coach, we ain't Michael Jordan. It's true. It's not a, it's not, it doesn't translate, right? Because they can't do what he could do. And sometimes we see Jesus that way. Well, why should I try to be like Jesus? I can't do what Jesus did. Well, here's the thing. I, I may not be able to raise up somebody who's dead. I may not be able to cure cancer with a touch, but I can definitely love my neighbor as myself. And that's one of the things that Jesus did. One of the things his humanity did. I can definitely have conversations with people that no one else wants to talk to. How many of you know somebody that nobody else wants to talk to? I can definitely go to them like the woman at the well, like many of the people in Jesus' life that he just walked up to and started conversations because he knew that they needed someone to do that. I can definitely see people based on what they're like and not on what they have to offer me. I can definitely see people for who they are that way. I can definitely speak the truth in love. I'm really good at speaking the truth. Anybody with me? I love being right. But that in love part is a little bit more of a challenge. I can definitely do that. Jesus did that. I can definitely walk in community with other believers just like Jesus did. That was part of his humanity. Listen, Jesus didn't need 12 people to walk with him. Do you guys understand that? He didn't need them, but you know what? He chose to walk with them anyway. Why? Because that's how human beings were created. And he knew that there would come a time like the time in Gethsemane when he would need three people to stand beside him and lift him up. Jesus, and yet every day I hear people saying, I don't have to be a part of a community of faith to be a Christian. I don't need other people to follow Jesus. And and I just want to say to you that if you want to be like Jesus, then you need to live your faith out in community. It's important. Yes, you can technically be saved without other people. But I guarantee you, you will never have the richness of the Christian life that you could have when you're walking shoulder to shoulder, side by side with some good people. We need to live in community. I can definitely gather friends around me when my heart is breaking or the future is too much to handle or when COVID takes over the world. I can definitely rely on other people like Jesus did. Friends, I believe 
that through Christ, I can say to God, not my will, but thine be done. You see, that's not miraculous. That's just a matter of the will. Friends, I believe we can be far more like Jesus than we ever dreamed or imagined, but we get hung up sometimes on all the miracles. Well, Jesus was able to be patient when he was God. No, that was part of his humanity. Now, I will admit, because he had no sin in his life, he had a perfect relationship with the Creator, and so he probably did these things a little easier than we will. It might take us some time to develop those skills. But I believe there's a lot about the humanity of Jesus that we can learn from. Friends, it's, it's really easy for us sometimes to fall into the role of the disciples in the story. Jesus showed his, us his humanity, but the disciples showed their humanity even more. I mean, Jesus really only needed them to stay awake. And this is where I get really judgmental. As I said before, I'm like, seriously, guys? Did you not know what Jesus was going to... He said it three times, or two times, I think, already. He said it two times already that he's going to die soon. And he asked you to go to the garden with him. And you can't stay awake for one lousy hour? What kind of friends are you? Right? But you know what? If put in their position, having traveled with a man who can heal the sick and raise the dead having traveled with somebody who could go into a a, a group of hostile Jewish leaders who want to kill him and say words that make them all back off and then just walk away, they probably felt as secure in their lives as they had ever felt. Am I right? They're like, we're with Jesus, man. Everything's good. He's going to be here forever. He's going to supply all our needs. We don't even need to fish anymore because Jesus can make fish out of other fish. Bread out of other bread. We'll never die probably because look at Lazarus. We've got it made. And so they're they're like, Jesus is like, would you come to the garden with me? Absolutely, Jesus, anything you want. We taking a nap out here? We sleeping for the night? What are we doing? I want you to stay up with me and pray. Okay. All right. Not necessarily my spiritual gift, Jesus, but I'll try. You know, they had no idea really what he was going through. Would I have done any different? Do I do any different? Do Jesus' words just speak to them or do they speak to us? Keep watch. Be vigilant. Watch and pray. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Friends, I believe those words are absolutely for us. And you know what? As we become more and more and more comfortable in our Christianity, we are more like the sleeping disciples than we really want to admit. Because God has called us to be vigilant. He's called us to to be sent. He never expected for us to get comfortable. I said back at the beginning of this series that, that God didn't call us to be safe or comfortable or at ease. We could be sent to a lost and dying world. Just as Jesus was sent to us, Jesus said, so I am sending you. And so we must, if we're going to be a sent people, understand that there will be times that are difficult, there will be times that are a struggle, and there are going to be times when the enemy comes at us with everything he's got, and we have got to stay vigilant and watch and pray. Because if we don't, the enemy will overcome us. We need to keep watch and pray so that we don't give in to temptation. Because the Spirit is willing, but our flesh is so weak. Listen, I hope that our Savior 
never comes and finds you or I sleeping when we should be on our knees praying with or for someone around us that desperately needs our prayers, someone who's struggling, someone who has too much to bear alone. May we never be at ease when someone that we love needs us to stand with them. May our God always find us ready to live and to love like Jesus. Pray with me, if you would, as we close. Our Father, we we do give you thanks once again for the gift of your Son, Jesus, and the gift of your Word, which explains who he was and what he meant to us, and, and given about not only the divinity, but the humanity of Jesus. Lord, sometimes it's really easy for us to see the big flashy miracles and and to think, well, being like Christ is just not really possible. It's overwhelming at times. And yet when we look at his life, there is so much there that we can emulate. There is so much there that is possible. And Lord, we believe that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you can do anything you choose through us. If we're willing to be open vessels, if we're willing to say, not my will, but thine be done. And I want to pray this morning that that every single person who is hearing the sound of my voice right now, whether it's today or or months from now, that you would speak to hearts and help us to see that that we need to learn all we can from Jesus' humanity. First of all, help us to never be afraid to to call people around us when we're struggling. Help us to never be afraid to, to grab two or three people and say, listen, I need you to keep watch with me because I'm going into temptation. I'm struggling with a decision. I'm, I'm dealing with an addiction, whatever it might be. And I need you to stand with me and to pray with me and to keep your face on the ground with me if need be. Help me fight this spiritual battle. I pray that you would help us to never be afraid to stand with someone who is in need and to be vigilant with them And to see the example of what the disciples did to Jesus and to see how they betrayed Him by not being attentive to His needs. Lord, Jesus never asked anybody to meet His needs. It was always about everyone else. This is the one time where He needed something and they let Him down. I pray that You would help us to see that You need us as well. You need us to be sent to the rest of the world so that they can come to know your love and your grace. Father, help us to never be so comfortable that we're unwilling to be sent. Lord, I pray right now that as we leave this place or as people who are gathered in their homes go about their business this week, that you would help us to to take you with us everywhere that we go, that we would be sent people every time we leave our homes that we would see every opportunity for interaction as an opportunity to be vigilant and and to see opportunities to, to share the good news of the gospel with people that need to hear it. God, I just pray that, that as we leave this room and as others leave their homes, that, that literally we would envision you sending us to the world at large. I know that they need us, and I know that you love them. Help us to love them too. We ask all of this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.